the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the background to this is, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of firm dates for, for the things that happened very early in the Bible. But most people think that the story of the Exodus happened sometime around 1200 B.C., give or take a few years can't pin it down exactly. But there are some interesting things that make that a possibility. Now, most people, if you've ever watched like The Prince of Egypt or those other movies, right, you see the Hebrew slaves building the pyramids. But by the time this story happens, the pyramids are already at least 1,300 years old. Um, they aren't building that. We don't know what they're building other than maybe these, these store cities that they mention in the book. But that would put the arrival of Joseph and Jacob and all of his family in Egypt sometime around 1600 B.C., and at that time, Egypt was not ruled by native Egyptians. It was ruled by a, a people called the Hyksos dynasty. And those people were a Semitic people who spoke a Semitic language who had migrated from somewhere in the Middle East into Egypt and risen to power. Now, the Hebrew people are also a Semitic people who speak a Semitic language. So it's not the same. Their language isn't the same, but they look a lot like them. They sound a lot like them. And that helps explain, one, why Pharaoh was so comfortable putting Joseph into such a powerful position. But it also explains something else, because about 100 years after that, that dynasty was overthrown by the native Egyptians, who were not too fond of the people who had been ruling over them. And it would make sense that if you've got this massive group of people who look and sound a lot like your oppressors, you might not like them too much. You might enslave them. 
And so 400 years pass, now they are on the road to freedom. And we're going to pick up the story in Exodus 14. This is after they have already left Egypt, they are in the wilderness on their way to what they believe is the promised land. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I love that line. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The obvious road home were these broad, flat, coastal plains that led all the way from Egypt up into Canaan. That's where the major highways were. That actually today is still where the major highways and railways are. People still travel the same route from Israel and from the Middle East into Egypt that they did all those years ago. But God doesn't lead the Israelites that way. He takes them straight to the shores of the sea. And they must have been confused. And the Egyptians must have been confused. Why would they take off into the wilderness, heading toward the sea, when everyone knows that that's not how you get to the place they're trying to go? The short answer is that at that time, Canaan, the promised land, is still part of the Egyptian empire. It wouldn't be for long, but for the moment, it was Egyptian territory. The promised land was ruled by the enemy, which meant all the roads leading to it would be watched and guarded. So if God is going to lead his people to freedom, he has to take them by a different route, and he'd have to find a way to deal with the Egyptians. God guides them. And, you know, often when we say that God is guiding us, we refer to something interior, right, like an intuition, small, still voice, uh, a certainty that this is what we should do. But in this case, there is a literal pillar of cloud and fire leading the way for them, right? It's really hard for them to, to get lost. It's like we all wish that happened to us, don't we? 
Like, that it was that obvious that this is where God wants us to go, except the problem is God leads them into a trap. They're stuck. There is nowhere for them to go. And of course, their faith begins to waver. Of course, they begin to doubt. They would be insane not to. There is no doubt that God led them to this spot and no doubt that they are now trapped, but that doesn't mean that God abandons them. God understands exactly how crazy his plan looks to his people. But God has a bigger view. The Exodus story isn't just about getting them out of Egypt. It's also about showing Pharaoh and the whole world who is really in charge. Pharaoh thought himself a god, and the Egyptians thought Pharaoh was a god, and God is about to prove them all wrong. Egypt at the time is the world's major superpower. In political terms, military terms, economic terms, they are the same to that time and place that we are to this time and place. They're the most powerful country in the world, and everyone knows it. And Pharaoh believes his will is the only will that matters. He thinks he's all-powerful, and his people and the people of all the surrounding nations are inclined to agree more often than not. And he's about to learn the hard way where the limits of his power are. This is a confrontation that plays out several times in the Bible. Political leaders fail to recognize that their power comes from God, that they are called to rule in his name and in, under his authority, and they try to usurp God's rule for themselves, and God steps in to show them just how wrong they are. And that story is not limited to biblical times either. These should be cautionary tales for everyone who rises to a position of power, and they should be hopeful tales for those of us who are faithful. It may not be as big of an issue here in our country where we get to elect our leaders, but around the world there are Christians who draw hope from the idea that God is the one who's in charge and that he will deal with rulers who don't see that as truth. So here's how this confrontation plays out, picking it up in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning... The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The story of the Red Sea, it isn't just the foundational identifying story of the Jewish people. It has lessons for us in our everyday lives because we'll all find ourselves in difficult times. And when we do, there are, are 10 things we can take away from this story, 10 rules for how to deal with difficulty from a Christian perspective. Rule one is to realize that God means for you to be where you are. God deliberately led his people into a trap. Think about that for a moment. Imagine you're one of those people. Your whole life, you've been a slave. And now God has set you free 
And not just that, but he's leading you to freedom in this pillar of cloud and fire. You've seen all these signs and wonders. You have no doubt that the almighty creator of the universe has chosen your people, freed your people, and is now taking you to safety. Imagine the, the joy and the security that they must have felt. And then you realize that that same God has led you into a trap. There is no way out. What would you do? I mean, there can be no question that God meant to bring you to that spot. He specified where to camp. You saw the pillar of cloud and fire stopping right there. So either he's trapped you with the intent of letting you be killed, or he's about to do something you never in your wildest dreams could have imagined. When we are faithfully following God, that does not mean our lives will be easy and joyful. God will lead us into difficulty. This is not an isolated incident. It happens to God's people time and time again. He takes them into the desert where there's no food and no water, so they'll have to rely completely on him. He repeatedly makes them send most of their soldiers away from the battle so that everyone will know it was God who won the victory. In the New Testament, Jesus commands his disciples to sail out on the Sea of Galilee when he knows there's a storm coming. God will send you into the storm. God will trap you by the sea. You won't see any way out. You will just have to trust. That's rule one. Rule two is to be more concerned with God's purposes than for your own relief. Remember, the Exodus is a showdown between God and Pharaoh. It's not a story just about God and Israel. The Israelites are part of a bigger story, and that will be true all throughout their history. They are the people through whom God will save the world. They have a higher purpose, and their lives are not their own. And that's true for us as well. We are God's people. We have a higher purpose, and our lives are not our own. To follow Jesus means to join in God's cause, to agree to let, you, to let God use you for his purposes. And so when God leads us into difficult times and places, instead of seeking our own relief, we ought to be seeking his purposes. And I will be the first to admit, I'm not good at that. And I'm willing to bet most of us aren't. But we see this play out in Jesus' ministry as well, right? He lets Lazarus die so he can display God's power and glory by raising him back to life. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. And that means at times we'll be brought into impossible situations. But our God does not waste those moments. Our God does not waste difficulty and suffering. He will deliver us in his own time, in his own way, and all to his purposes. Rule three is to acknowledge your enemy, but to keep your eyes on God. Pharaoh did not surrender his slaves without a fight, neither will Satan. He'll pursue us relentlessly, and we have to acknowledge that because it's present all throughout Scripture. Jesus and Paul in the New Testament both warn extensively about the enemy that we face. Now, the Bible does not tell us much about that, in all honesty. It doesn't describe anything other than, than the existence of a personal, inhuman, and evil force at work in the world. In fact, Satan's not even a name, it's a title. 
It means the tempter or the tester. It's not a name. A better translation would be the Satan, not even just Satan. But all throughout Scripture, there is an insistence that, that evil is embodied and evil is at work in ways that are not merely human. And the Bible does not tell us much about it except to warn us that it exists and it's actively working to oppose the gospel and bring about our destruction. So we have to acknowledge the enemy, but we don't have to be intimidated by it because we are surrounded by the presence of God and God will protect and deliver us from the enemy. The only time we have to be afraid is when we cease to acknowledge it. And the fourth rule is to pray. Often, in times of difficulty, we really only have two options, right? We can panic or we can pray. And like a lot of you, probably, I'm more inclined to panic than to pray, right? It's a lot easier to panic than to pray. But very often, the primary reason God leads us to a place where we can't go forwards, sideways, or backwards is so that we are forced to look upwards. The Israelites panicked at first. I love that line. Did you just bring us out here because there's not enough graves in Egypt to bury us all? (laughs) The sarcasm is great, right? But then they cried out to God. They cried out to God to save them. And we're not talking here about like ordinary daily prayers. This is a prayer of desperation and fear, casting ourselves wholly on God in the sure and certain knowledge that only he can deliver us. There is no other way out. And don't just pray alone either. Find someone else to join you. I can't explain it, and neither can anyone else, but sometimes, for some reason, we need the prayers of multiple people in order to be effective. The Israelites cried out as one. Rule five, stay calm and confident and give God time to work. Moses tells the people to stand firm and stand still. The Lord will fight for them. They have only to keep silent. I find myself repeating that phrase over and over in difficult moments because I find it so comforting. The Lord will fight for me. I only have to keep still and quiet. My gut instinct when I'm faced with a problem is to solve it. That's probably true for a lot of us, right? There's a problem. Got to think of a solution. To, To immediately think of a solution or a plan to get out of the situation, to find some shred of hope to cling onto that I have control over. But that's the wrong approach. The Lord will fight for me. I have only to keep still. If a problem seems too big for you to solve, that's because it is. And you aren't meant to solve it. You just need to wait and watch. And God will lead you through. Which takes us to rule six. When you're unsure of what to do, just take the next logical step by faith. The 19th century theologian C.H. McIntosh believed that God did not part the Red Sea all at once. He did it progressively so that the Israelites had to trust in God for each step forward. So that as they're walking through the ocean, they are hemmed in by water on three sides, in front and to both sides, with the army at their back. And they had to keep trusting that as they kept going forward, God would keep parting the waters. In verse 15, which I didn't read to you, God cries, God tells Moses, why are you crying to me? Tell the people to step forward. He says that 
before he's parted the waters. I love that answer to their prayer. Just step forward and see what God is going to do. Sometimes that is the only answer we will get to our most fervent prayers. Just keep going. No clear vision of where we'll end up or how God will deliver us. Just keep going. Because sometimes God only leads us one step at a time. Rule seven is to envision God's presence. We don't have the benefit of a pillar of cloud and fire around us all the time to let us know that God, I wish we did, that would be really cool. But we don't. And the reality is, you know, we tend to think, well, if we just had something like that, it would be so much easier to have faith in God. But as you see throughout the story of Exodus, that pillar is with them all the time, and they keep having doubts, and they keep having crises of faith, and they keep failing. So actually, having this awesome sight there isn't a guarantee that your faith will just be easy. Nonetheless, it helps to envision God's presence. Because in verses 19 and 20, which again, we didn't read, but you can read them on your own, the pillar moves. It's been in front of them this whole time, but now it moves behind them to stand between them and the oncoming army. God's presence blocks the enemy while the Israelites escape. At the Red Sea, God made his presence real to the Israelites. Difficult times are often the moments when we become most aware that God really is physically with us. Never underestimate the value of that lesson. In verse 8, not verse 8, rule 8, trust God to deliver in his own unique way. Imagine, again, being one of those people trapped by the sea with the army on one side, the ocean on the other side, and there is no escape, and you probably have your children with you. You know you can't protect them. You cry out to God. You turn to Moses, and Moses says, no, no, don't worry, watch this, and he just looks at the water and holds his hand up. You probably think the old dude's finally lost it. What's he doing? This is not, the army's that way. That's just the water, Moses. And then you watch as the water begins to part. God does not deliver us in the ways we expect. That's true at the Red Sea, but it's also true on the cross. Nothing about the cross was expected. Nothing about Jesus was what people expected. And their reaction to him tells us that most of the Jews in that day and age failed to learn this lesson from the Exodus story. They were looking for God to deliver them in very specific ways. And when he did something unexpected, they rejected him. Don't make the same mistake. Whatever God's deliverance will look like, it will not be what you think it's going to be. It will be surprising. But it will also be amazing. Rule nine is to view any current crisis as a time to build your faith for the future. God will always use our problems to heighten our maturity, to deepen our faith. And so instead of viewing our problems as things to be avoided or to be overcome, we view them as an opportunity to grow, as a lesson, as training in the faith. What is God teaching you? How is God growing you? How will you emerge from this stronger than before? And the last one, verse 10, is very simple. 
don't forget to praise him. Don't forget to praise him. The very first thing the Israelites do when they reach the other shore is they sing a song of praise to God. They rejoice that their God has done the impossible and brought them to safety, and so they praised him. Now, it's understandable if we don't praise God in the midst of our crisis. They weren't singing while they were walking through the ocean. They definitely were not singing when they were trapped on the other shore. But I find that often we aren't particularly good about praising him after the crisis is over either. Sometimes we just turn our attention straight to the next crisis. Other times we praise ourselves because we think foolishly that we've persevered and we've solved our own problems. Friends, when God delivers you, sing his praises because it reminds you of what really just happened and it prepares you to better deal with the next crisis coming. These are the Red Sea rules. This is what we do in times of crisis. We turn to God, we trust in God, we wait on God, and above all, we remind ourselves that the same God who led us in will lead us out. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.